Welcome to this episode of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny. Our guest this episode is Ron Elving. Ron Elving is the senior editor and correspondent on the Washington Post for National Public Radio News, where he is frequently heard as a news analyst. He also writes regularly for NPR.org. And I've described Ron a number of times as one of my regular favorite guests uh, when I was a host of Forum for the NPR station in Northern California. Ron hosted and interviewed me on my final broadcast for KQED Radio. I've always said when I've had him as a guest that I was eager to hear what he has to say about politics, news, and current affairs on every level, and his breadth, depth, and clarity are peerless. I welcome him to Gray Matter with Michael Krasny. Good to see you. Good to see you, Michael, and thank you for that very generous introduction. It was a great pleasure to be with you for that broadcast. Well, and it's a great pleasure to be with you for this one. Um, I think we have to begin by talking about what you've described as the strangest uh, midterm election of all time, perhaps, certainly in your many years uh, working with news, and I have to agree with that. I, I was thinking about what we've learned from this, and I'd like to go right to that. We've learned that maybe polls and media narratives don't work very well, uh, or well as they should work. The efficacy of them comes under scrutiny here. But I was also thinking of a couple of other angles, and I'd like to get your response to them. I was thinking about the fact that uh, choice and democracy and the integrity of democracy may have been looming much greater than anybody anticipated. Yes. Exactly. And I spoke to uh, two classes of American University students where I teach there. And on Tuesday, I had been giving them this very sage lecture about what matters in midterms and what had always called the tune. And I included in that uh, the issue mix for this year or for any given year. That's always important. But I estimated roughly where, on the basis of all the things that I've been able to ingest over the last six months, uh, where the voters seem to be getting their motivation. Was it inflation? Was it the Dobbs decision banning abortion or at least leaving it up to the states to ban abortion? Uh, what was it that was motivating the voters, including, as you say, issues of democracy, whether or not people had gotten a bit of a taste of autism Democracy from Donald Trump, and we're, well, I, I, I hesitate to say it, but hankering for some more. And uh, all those things, I think, were, were part of the mix. And as I said to my students this morning, I got the mix a little wrong. And like a chemist, that matters a great deal. I think I underestimated the significance of the registrations on behalf of Dobbs, the, the number of people who climbed aboard to be part of the process this year for the first time in many cases, uh, primarily women. Most of them were, were women. That's that's data we can actually measure. But uh, it appears that they were motivated by the Dobbs decision and by the abortion choice issue. And we saw that in the five states that had referenda, including California, of course, Montana, uh, Kentucky, Vermont, and Michigan all had referenda. And all of them, whether it was a yes vote or a no vote, the one that favored abortion rights there was also an underestimation, though, it seems to me, of Gen X and the role of those of the TikTok generation in terms of their voting, but also independence. I mean, independence came out as never before against uh, 
uh, well, in favor of it, the party, and that was not the case in midterm elections habitually or characteristically. Absolutely. You put your finger on it. And I'll come back to that in just a moment. But the other mea culpa, the other apology I had to make to my students this morning was that I underestimated the degree to which they themselves would prove me wrong. I mean, I, I expect all my students in the School of Public Affairs to be voters, but most of their peers, uh, people under 30, have been notorious no-shows in midterms. And that has been the main reason for the huge drop-off in participation between presidential elections and midterm elections, and also the main explanation for why Democrats tend to do uh, poorly in midterms, except in exceptional cases when people get motivated by something like, say, George W. Bush's war in Iraq. So the students proved me wrong. That is to say their generational cohort did. Gen Z was very much represented and, in fact, elected the first of their number to Congress, a 25-year-old in Florida, uh, becoming the youngest member of Congress ever. And so that is a big factor. But to back up to your question, the other part of your question, you put your finger really on the uniqueness of this election, and that's independence. You look at the last four midterm elections, the last four, whichever way it was going, whether it was a Republican midterm win or a Democratic midterm win, independents voted in the winning direction for the party that did better in that midterm election by double digits in each of those four, sometimes by 20 percentage points more. By double digits, they favored the out party, the party that was not the president's party. This time, not only was it not in double digits, but independents appear to have split almost evenly, and if anything, they were slightly more democratic. That, as far as I can tell, and we'll, we'll do some digging here to, to check the data on this, but that appears to have been a unique circumstance or certainly a rarely precedented one. And how much of this, in your judgment, can be attributed to what you mentioned before, the fear of autocracy or the feeling that uh, creeping autocracy or extremism was no longer acceptable to the body politic and no longer acceptable to those citizens exercising their franchise, uh, particularly in the sense of, well, not only Donald Trump, but uh, the election deniers. Yes, and, and the memory of January 6th, which fortunately, in my view, was kept alive by the hearings of the January 6th committee in the House of Representatives, but also, I think, by, by some elements of the media that have continued to puzzle over January 6th and wonder how that could have happened in America. Uh, the, the, the issue of whether or not people care enough about the system that we think of as democracy and have largely taken for granted all of our lives you know that it was like the mountains you know they were just going to be there and uh, i think people have come to see that there is a little more fragility there that these aren't geographic features that this is something that people have to pursue and make a commitment to and i think that all of that uh, all of that has endured somewhat from January 6th and from all this talk, most of which I think it's fair to say uh, originates back to the previous president, the former president. And it's not that Republicans haven't always complained about what they see as skullduggery in the Democratic venues in the big cities and so on. They've been complaining about that for a long time and looking for it for a long time and trying very hard to find it during the Bush administration, generally with no success. But Donald Trump signed on to it early and made it a big part of his whole political persona. And we're going to be digging into this further for more data to really prove it. But it appears that this election, uh, 
was as much a pushback on the previous president as it was on the current president. Midterms are notoriously pushbacks on the current president. That makes perfect sense. But this one seemed to have had a lot to do with pushing back on Donald Trump as well. Well, I want to ask you about the effect this may have on the uh, former president, but I'm also interested in finding out what you think about, well, what's been presented, not only in terms of questioning legitimacy of elections, it does go back also to the Clinton administration, notwithstanding what happened during the insurrection. Uh, the Clinton administration saying essentially that the Russians interfered, and there certainly was evidence of that. In fact, uh, even recently, Putin's chef, as he's called, uh, said, you know, I did it, we did interfere, and we're going to interfere again. So there's that whole element and the distrust and the sense of, well, elections not being fair, not being equitable. I mean, American people really have to suffer through this, maybe now with every election. Perhaps so. I think with higher political consciousness, which we, generally speaking, think is a good thing, we, we like to see public engagement, we like to see voters turning out, we like to see high engagement. But with that comes uh, a certain number of people who check in late in life, uh, perhaps, or after a long period of time of not being checked in. and. Um, Maybe they do so through media that uh, have long since abandoned any thought of trying to be fact-based. And uh, social media, of course, never had any pretense of being fact-based. So they get a lot of misinformation rather readily and easily and don't discriminate automatically and no longer have the services of gatekeepers, as we used to call them, people who tried to render some sort of judgment about whether or not putting something out on broadcast. You know, we used to have the fairness doctrine and all of that, you remember. Uh, we don't have those gatekeepers so much anymore. And certainly in social media, uh, we have not, generally speaking, had them. I know there's a controversy about who gets canceled off of Twitter and so on, and we can talk about that. But there's been a great opening of many new avenues for misinformation to reach the American voter. And the Russians demonstrated that in 2016. I think there were others besides the Russians, but that certainly the Russians did. And, and by the way, it should be no surprise to anyone in this country to hear Russians fessing up to it. The Mueller report uh, which was was characterized as a, falsely as a vindication of the president, despite the fact that Robert Mueller himself said it was not. They were absolutely clear on the subject of whether or not there had been interference. What the role of the Trump campaign or the Trump family in that interference was 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 left open. So what does this mean for Donald Trump? I mean, uh, most of the candidates, a few exceptions, that he backed did not fare well in this last election. Uh, he's already gone into a kind of embattled state with Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, and Ron, saying, in fact, that he has the goods on Ron DeSantis, things that nobody knows, all kinds of threats, uh, uh, presumably to crush the opposition. But now we have the Murdoch empire suggesting that maybe they're taking a counter view toward uh, Donald Trump. I mean, the Wall Street Journal had a big editorial recently. Fox News has not necessarily been behind Trump. New York Post has talked about him as a loser. I mean, things don't exactly seem to be going his way. 
And he's going to announce soon, by the way, <laughs> I should mention, probably he's going to announce soon that he is running again. Well, there, there, there had been a previous announcement that on next Tuesday night, around the time he thinks election results ought to be uh, all sewn up at 9 p.m. Eastern time uh, next Tuesday night, uh, he was going to make a very important announcement. And he modestly allowed us how it might be the most important announcement in all of United States political history. So I don't think that it's going to be about, uh, you know, where he plans to spend the holidays. I guess he is running again. It makes perfect sense from his legal standpoint for him to announce that he's running for president. Yes, he does have to comply now with some campaign finance laws, and that's inconvenient. But it also allows him to characterize anything that is said or done about him from now on, including indictments, and there could be several as political witch hunts. Now, he would be inclined to say that anyway, but it lends a certain amount of force if he can say, as soon as I announced, suddenly they indict me. What's that about? Isn't that a clear sign that this is politically motivated and that we have seen the Biden administration weaponize the Department of Justice? Well, he will want to do essentially won't he what Bibi Netanyahu did in Israel, that is, become the chief executive again so that he can ward off whatever forces are going to move against him and be the president of the United States and then say to Merrick Garland, go against the president of the United States and manipulate the Department of Justice and do all of that to his own benefit. I think that was, is, is, I'm not sure how the timetable is going to work here because the, the, the sense has been for some while that if justice were going to indict him either for January 6th and his degree of involvement in that or failure to do anything that would have obviously been his responsibility to do or for the Mar-a-Lago documents, that if they were going to do that, if they were going to indict him for that, they would wait until after the election because it has always been the Justice Department's policy to wait until after elections and not appear to be torpedoing a candidate before the voters have had a chance. Do you think if he does run, he'll run with Mrs. Malaprop, Marjorie Taylor Greene, that's a rumor, um, or recently who spoke of on Twitter, um, our enemies are quacking in their boots, which led to some hilarious you know, <laughs> cartoons of ducks and boots and so forth. Um, Everyone needs an editor, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> well, but this is going to be someone who is, if, if Kevin McCarthy indeed turns out to be uh, uh, the um, head of the House of Representatives, the, the speaker, excuse me, um, then he's going to have all this division from people like that within his ranks. I mean, Talk to John Boehner or Paul Ryan. They didn't exactly have an easy time of it, even when they had the majority. And they but I'm wondering seen. about your, your sense of, of Trump's certainty or likelihood of his running and who he would be running with. He's not going to run with Mike Pence. And it's probably likely if Joe Biden runs, is he going to run with Kamala Harris? There's a, there's a lot of speculative uh, distance here and many steps there. Uh, uh, I'm not sure Joe Biden will run again. I, he certainly seemed more inclined to do so uh, in his most recent news conference after this election because he, relatively speaking, I mean, talking about other presidents in the past, you've only got to find, I mean, there are only maybe two or three who gained seats in a midterm and always under very special circumstances, like right after 9-11 or in the depths of the Great Depression in the 1930s, uh, even, I mean, just so few. And and to to have done as well as he did, I mean, 
didn't gain seats. But if their losses are down into single digits, that's just astonishing in terms of all the expectations. So he sounded pretty, pretty, pretty chipper, pretty chipper, and, and I would say more sure of himself than I've seen him since um, roughly the South Carolina primary in 2020. Uh, he, well, we're speculative here, but I think Joe, B, Joe Biden feels if Donald Trump is his Republicans nominee, he can beat Donald Trump. He did it once before. Despite his age, probably he thinks he can do it again. Don't you? And I think many sensible Republicans would say that the time when their party could win with Donald Trump has passed. The 2016 was an anomaly. Uh, it, it had to do with the circumstances of the time. We just had eight years of uh, Democratic president. And it had to do with how the country reacted to Hillary Clinton and some of her issues. So now that we've seen Donald Trump as president, and we have seen Donald Trump as former president, and we are aware of far more uh, about the man than people knew even six or seven years ago, and by we, I mean the American voting public. I think it's unlikely that he would be chosen president again, although I wouldn't rule out his getting the Republican nomination again, because that's a different proposition entirely. And that's why he's so much more focused on Ron DeSantis. That's the, uh, the, the first issue for him. Yet, if he were somehow to defeat DeSantis and get the nomination again, that might be the Democrats' best hope, in a sense, for 2024, because otherwise, uh, if we are still struggling as a country in terms of inflation, and if the mood of the country doesn't improve somewhat, and it's uh, really historically sour, it would be a difficult year for Biden or any other Democrat to run. And as for the vice presidents, those are decisions I think will be made um, deep into 2023 and if not 2024 itself. Is the Republican Party no longer the cult of Donald Trump then? Has that ended with this midterm election? I am tempted to say that, Michael. I genuinely am. That's what I'm, I was sensing. Yeah, from what I, I, I feel as though it's that moment when you're on an airplane crossing the country and you've been flying for hours. And if you're awake, you, you, you feel just the slightest sense that the aircraft is flying differently, like it has slowed slightly. And the very next thing you, you, you think, are we descending just a little bit? And then pretty soon you hear that welcome voice of the flight attendant saying, we have begun our descent into San Francisco. And um, please fasten your seatbelt and make sure your seatbelt is securely fastened and you know your seat is fully upright and all that. Um, I have that feeling because I've been watching this from close up since, since early in 2015. And I am struck by the sense that I have this week that the reaction to Donald Trump in the Republican Party has changed materially and that more and more of the kind of Republicans who were perfectly glad to follow him up to now are no longer perfectly glad to follow him. It's not that they've had a revelation or an epiphany or that they've suddenly seen him in a new light. It's that they have seen enough to think that it would be better to do this now than to wait until later. I mean, I'm making it sound like some sort of, you know, plot against Caesar, but they do have to get behind someone else and they do have to begin to say it is time that we move on as a Republican Party. And this would seem to be the hour. I like your aviation metaphor. Lots more for us to talk about, a lot of questions, but some questions coming in from those who are listening that I want to go to. Stefan Fitcher begins uh, the questioning here with 
something that you've heard through the years. I know uh, Stefan is in Germany. He wants to know, from an outside perspective, the U.S. seems to be stuck in its red and blue two-party system. Could a third party with a less radical profile be a solution in a time of extremes? And what would it take? Money. <laughs> Not to be overly blunt, but uh, in the past, attempts to organize, and by the way, there are a number of very sincere people who are trying to organize third parties in this country uh, right now. Liz Cheney, maybe? Uh, she is certainly someone who would like to make herself available for a third party draft, yes. Uh, whether or not she has uh, the wherewithal and the imp impulse to attempt to do that uh, from the ground up by herself, I think is another question. Uh, infrastructure of all kinds, uh, media time, et cetera, extremely expensive. And also historically, uh, third parties don't develop in the middle. Third parties develop to the wings of the major parties. Uh, somebody breaks off from the Republican Party and says, you're, 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 you're not this enough, and I want to be more in that direction. Uh, somebody breaks off from the Democrats and says, you know, you're too much corporate money, you're too establishment, you don't represent the people anymore. I'm a, I'm a true progressive, and I'm going to run to your left, Ralph Nader, and so forth. Uh, we've seen this. We've seen this in the past. And uh, generally speaking, what happens is that the party that has spawned that third party suffers from the third party's presence on the ballot as competition. I don't think that, that Ralph Nader, for example, in 2000 drew that many Republican voters, some. But uh, by and large, they were people who were more progressive than the Democratic Party or dissatisfied with Al Gore and basically from a perspective of the left. So that's been our history. And, and if someone can break out, and I don't want to say anything to discourage people from trying, because I think that that would be a wonderful uh, eventuality to have uh, another option, another alternative. At the same time, now, having watched what goes on, you mentioned Israel a moment ago, uh, coalition politics and parliamentary systems, multi-parties and so forth, um, have a lot of attractive aspects and, and, and don't suffer from quite the same calcification as our two-party system, but they have their own problems. And sometimes those problems, uh, for example, the, the inability of, uh, of the, the, um, the, the various non Tory parties in England to overcome the Conservative Party there, even as you know, floundering as it has been in recent years, it, it isn't a, it isn't an automatic solution. I'd love to see the right people with the right resources try to do it. Third parties, however, can make a difference in terms of close elections, and I was uh, sort of wondering about the role of the Libertarian candidate in the Georgia election that's coming up December six, who got about two percent of the vote. That could put either candidate, Warnock or Walker, over. And traditionally, the voters who are libertarian go for a Republican candidate. But this candidate happens to be gay, and I don't know if that makes a difference. Uh, how, do you, uh, how do you assess that? There have been third-party candidates who, in, uh, for example, in Pennsylvania, there was a third-party candidate who dropped out, uh, was probably still on the ballot, but, but, if, but, but announced that he was no longer running and wanted everybody to vote for John Fetterman. Because uh, with, with whatever concerns people may have about his health, uh, John Fetterman was so much closer to this third-party candidate's view of the world that he did not want to be a cause for people to, uh, uh, well, he did not want to have, 
his candidacy hurt Fetterman and helped Mehmet Oz. So he dropped out and endorsed Fetterman. Uh, I, I would hazard the guess that if the libertarian candidate in Georgia were to make a move of that kind on behalf of uh, Raphael Warnock, the Reverend Warnock, uh, that would make a difference a little bit. If some libertarians came over to vote for him in the runoff, that would uh, be beneficial. On the other hand, I'm not sure how many of his voters, the libertarian voters of Georgia, uh, are going to be available to either of the candidates in the runoff. Jim Keppel from Cincinnati says, do you think the polls might have themselves affected the election by giving Republicans a sense of comfort and Democrats a sense of worry? Could they have affected turnout enough to affect some close outcomes? My sense is that the times when polls matter the most is when polls lull people into not voting. I'm, I'm, I'm not convinced that Republicans suffered in this election because their base voters, their, their committed voters, did not turn out. Now, we're going to find out. I mean, that's the sort of thing that uh, serious social research can get at uh, in the time between elections. Now, I, I distinguish between serious social, social, social scientific polls, on the one hand, which are done for the purpose of learning and knowing, as opposed to most political polls, which are done either to sell media or to uh, influence people or to please candidates uh, or to try to influence voters in that sense. Uh, that's a little different. I'm saying it's illegitimate. I, I doubt that it's as accurate. Uh, but there are some serious academic pollsters who can tell us more things in the interim between elections uh, than we know before elections. And so I try to pay as little attention to polls as possible. I try to stay off 538.com. I try to stay uh, away from uh, compilations of polling and so on. Of course, I can't entirely. I mean, I, I just I can't divorce myself from it entirely, but it, it does seep in and it does influence how you think about an election. I, I, I would hazard the guess, and I, I don't think this is entirely a guess, that a lot of people stayed home in 2016. They weren't crazy about Hillary Clinton, and they assumed from everything they had seen in polling that there was no chance in the world that Donald Trump was going to win their state or win nationally. And so they didn't bestir themselves. Question from uh, Eric Billings in Washington, D.C. He wants to know, as a media professional and having seen the recent trends in misinformation propagation, which you alluded to before, do you think there is need or room for additional regulation of media, social and traditional formats, or is that slope too slippery? It's terribly slippery. And as soon as you start, uh, as soon as you start having the government be involved in regulating the media, not that it hasn't been in the past. As I mentioned earlier, we've had things like the Fairness Doctrine and what have you, equal time provisions on broadcast outlets because they use the public airwaves. Um, that's a government regulation, to be sure. I don't think that that era was worse than now. I think it had its flaws. But um, I also would hold that people got more reliable information by the most mass media of a generation or two ago when there was a little bit more regulation and that the completely unfettered nature of social media where people can say anything, do anything, be Russian bots and impersonate Americans who were, you know, good flag waving Texan, you know, truck drivers and so forth. Uh, I don't think that helps us. I think that's not, you know, free speech. I think it's deceit. And insofar as it is possible, and it's going to have to be done gingerly, 
But insofar as it's possible to regulate that kind of activity so as to eliminate deceit as opposed to, you know, uh, political opinions that you don't happen to hold yourself, I think it might be worth pursuing. I think it might be worth having another look at it in the spirit of the way it was done, uh, starting back with the original Broadcast Act in the 1920s. Well, that brings me actually to um, an article you wrote, which I read with great interest. It was in NPR.org, and it was all about, you began by Diogenes, you know, carrying the light, and you went into the difference really between facts and what is at least estimated or assumed to be truth. We need more facts, although the Moynihan quote came quickly to my mind about facts versus opinions. But when you have someone like Kellyanne Conway talking about alternate facts and so forth, you, you have a world that's really... In fact, I think you were saying this is maybe the real question of our time. How do we, how do we wed ourselves to facts as opposed to all of the false fake news that's out there and all of the opinions that are out there that mean so little? One thing that, again, would, would hark us back somewhat to the past and which the social media were exempt from was the responsibility that people have uh, to their fellow citizens that uh, could lead to them being sued. And if you can't be sued for anything that appears on your platform, no matter what, uh, that does tend to encourage uh, not only the platform provider, but also the people who use it to think that anything goes, because it would appear that anything does. So if there's no penalty for complete fiction, totally making things up, uh, uh, abusive misuse of the media, I think we can assume that there will be such. And, and this does tie back to what we were talking about with Russian interference. Uh, a lot of that was a portrayal of an alternative reality that was simply and frankly fictional. It was simply being invented. Uh, so if someone can do that and there's absolutely no way for current regulations to prevent it or to to restrain it, uh, I think that's an abuse that, that we need to look at. And I know there have been some thoughtful people, uh, both in the media and in academia and perhaps even in politics, who have been trying to do just that. Well, Alex Jones was brought to a sense of justice in a big way in his pocketbook. That's right, because, because, because the legal system was open to him. It was available to him. It was possible for the people he had harmed to actually hold him to account. Uh, and, and here again, you know, to some degree, that is a function of which medium you're using. That people do have responsibilities for what they put out on public airwaves. Uh, and that's, that's part of it. Also, that people could show the harm that was done by his specific uh, falsehoods. So, insofar as that can be a more generalized lesson to people who practice what Alex Jones has practiced, uh, that I think is a good thing. Our guest uh, on Gray Matter with Michael Krasny is Ron Elving of National Public Radio. And one of our first podcasts uh, was with Larry Diamond, uh, expert from Hoover Institution on uh, democracy. And we talked a lot about ranked choice. And David Barton from Memphis, Tennessee, wants to know what you, Ron, think about ranked choice voting and its chance to be implemented. Uh, Larry Diamond is a big advocate of it. Yes, well, I'm glad to hear that. And he's familiar with voting systems all over the world, of course. That's part of his expertise. I have to admit, I am more than modestly hopeful about ranked choice voting. I, I think it's going to be a tough sell. Uh, 
because it is a little complicated. It's, it, it's not rocket science. It's, it's not nearly as complicated as the signal system that baseball teams use to tell batters and pitchers and so forth what the manager wants them to do. Uh, it, it takes a little bit of doing and a little bit of thought. But my experience is once people have got it, and it doesn't take nearly as long as figuring out how to do most of the things people learn to do on computers, they realize that it's empowering. It's empowering for your vote to survive your first choice. So if there are five candidates and you can choose among the five, you can choose three or four, whichever the system chooses to make it a pick three, a pick four, whichever, um, and rank them. Not just say all those are acceptable to me, but to say that's my favorite and this other one over here, this is the one that would disturb me most to see in office. I think we can all go back over elections that we've seen, particularly in the primaries, and uh, imagine times that that would have been very handy. Now, I haven't seen the final results, and there's, you know, they have to go through the ranked choice system in Alaska. But uh, I think the general consensus up there is that without it, uh, Sarah Palin would be on her way to Congress right now because she would have won the Republican primary way back last spring. Instead, she had to go to, through the ranked choice voting and then a runoff and did not win and did not have uh, the most second place votes. And so she. He's still a private citizen in Alaska, and I don't know the results yet. No one does yet of uh, what happened in Alaska this week. But uh, I think people in Alaska would be quite shocked if uh, Sarah Palin came out of this round of voting as their new congresswoman. Now, I, I, I will admit I was not a great admirer of her political career up to now. Uh, and I think that that is a demonstration of how people in Alaska didn't get stuck with her again, with un, which under the, which which under the old system, you know that was operative when she was first in politics, or that's operative in most of America. Uh, she would be right now on her way to Congress. There are some who think that McCain lost because of her. Are you one of those? I sat. And he started losing ground tremendously because of the choice of hers as running mate. Uh, hers as running mate. You know, I heard so many people that summer, 2008, say, oh, this is the savior of John McCain. I mean, he was so dull and I wasn't interested in it. But now, boy, he's got that rip-roaring, fantastic Sarah. And her crowds that fall were far larger than his. And so there was that there was that element of, of that choice that was, in a sense, brilliant because it put him in the running at a time when it appeared he wouldn't be. But then, of course, we had the collapse of Lehman Brothers and we had uh, 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 the, the Wall Street seizing up and credit markets seizing up, Wall Street collapsing. That whole mortgage crisis put such an emphasis on competence and, and you know, electing people who were more than great rally speakers. Uh, and at that point, of course, we, we started learning more about just how ill-prepared she was. And uh, and in that sense, I think she she probably uh, finished him with some voters. And and there were so many other things going on in 2008. But I remember sitting at a lunch some while after here in Washington and having a couple of people from the military tell me that they had never voted Democratic in their life, that they had no use for Barack Obama, but that they could not stand the idea of serving in the United States armed forces in uniform under a President Palin. That they just thought that was, you know, now maybe that was sexism on their part. I don't know. But they seemed to be quite offended that McCain, whom they 
admired greatly, had chosen somebody so ill-prepared to be commander-in-chief. And they were talking strictly in terms of national security. McCain called, uh, excuse me, uh, Donald Trump called McCain a loser because he was a POW. That somehow equated in President Trump's mind with being a loser. Now, Kerry Lake has taken to from Arizona. I don't know how that's going to turn out. We're doing this now before we know the actual outcome of that uh, that race. But she went into not only election denial, but also statements along those lines about McCain being a loser, when at one time she was tremendous admirer of McCain's. I only bring this up because it just seems to show kind of the chameleon nature of certain politicians and how they can shift in ways that are almost utterly unpredictable, simply can't in any way imagine. I want to get to something else, though, that has always kind of... Um, Something I've always wanted to ask you because you're such a seasoned veteran with these things, and that is we've been talking in the last election, in the midterm election, about uh, forces on the ground and door-to-door and who could mount the best campaigns and so forth. And it seems to me that the Democrats really showed that they have those kind of strengths, maybe even more than the Republicans. On the other hand, the Republicans have been pretty deft and able at gerrymandering, which also played a role in this election and plays a role in all elections. Is that a little bit too uh, simplistic of a binary? The, the, the Republicans are better at gerrymandering and Democrats are better at getting the forces out there? There is some truth in that, but I would say you have to look at it state by state. For example, uh, most of the people I've talked to about what happened in Florida this weekend, by the way, that's where the red wave was. Uh, they won everything in Florida. They won all the really contested, uh, desirable races, governor, senator, several congressional seats that were contested. Uh, the Democratic Excuse Party— me, surprisingly, New York even had a bit of a red wave. Well, and I was about to say, uh, that's the other part of your question about gerrymandering, in that in that uh, they the Democrats had controlled the— map drawing process in New York with all the levers being on, in Democratic hands, they drew a very aggressive map that almost abolished the Republican Party in terms of seats in Congress. And uh, a judge there threw it out and said, this is, you know, this is obviously abusive. I personally think all judges should take that, that view and, and the Supreme Court should long ago have taken seriously partisan gerrymandering the way they took seriously racial gerrymandering. Uh, took until the 1960s, but they did it. And uh, we, we've had uh, proscriptions against that since. But the, but, but, but the, the Supreme Court doesn't want to touch partisan gerrymandering. And by and, by and large, most courts have not. But this judge did. And he threw out the Democrats' map. And he said, I'll draw you a fairer map. And he did so. And as a result, the Republicans have picked up three to four seats in New York, one in Hudson Valley, one more outstate, two or three more outstate, where there's always been a lot of Republican territory, always. But it, you draw the map to either minimize that Republican territory or maximize it. And um, this map made it possible for the Republicans to pick up three or four seats in New York. They're going to pick up some seats in California. And irony of ironies, their majority which will be small in the new house, uh, is going to be dependent on those seats they picked up in New York and California. And a question from one of our listeners, Reed Maidenberg, who once, he says, Ron, I alluded to this before, uh, and he asked directly, what do you make of Murdoch breaking up with Trump and what effect may that have on any potential presidential run? 
You know, I, I don't often quote Michael Wolff, the uh, magazine writer who wrote several books about Donald Trump, uh, but he has a relationship with Rupert Murdoch and had uh, was a biographer of Murdoch's, and Murdoch talks to him, and some of the others in that family do. And uh, in his last book about uh, Donald Trump's presidency, I think he called it landslide, uh, he tells an extraordinarily interesting anecdote, which of course I can't confirm, but um, in that anecdote, uh, Trump has everyone he knows on election night 2020 calling the Murdochs. So every member of his family, you know, Donald Jr. and Ivanka and everyone is out there making calls and somebody finally gets through to Lachlan or someone who can get the man on the phone and they finally get Rupert all the way into the hands of one of the top Trump people, maybe a family member. And a family member lays it out and says, you've got to get Fox News to re call to to rescind their call of Arizona because that's messed up our whole little plan here it's going to keep us from claiming that we've got the election that we are that we won and this is like midnight and they've got all these people waiting in the ballroom you know to 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 party and uh Murdoch says well, I won't say what Murdoch is quoted as saying, but I think we all can imagine uh, his um, expression. But uh, but in a very, very, very pithy way, he says no. And at that moment, and I think since then, there has been the beginning of a real distinction between at least the Fox and the premier properties of, of the Murdoch empire and their attitude towards Trump. Not that they turned against him. We're seeing that a little bit more now. But the Wall Street Journal started to write editorials that were hostile. They wrote a very tough editorial after the January 6th committee ended. And uh, New, York, New York Post will make fun of anyone. And now Trumpy Dumpty, everyone's seen the cartoon. Uh, that is a sea change that is becoming more apparent all the time. It started a while ago, and it is just manifesting itself more openly all the time. Uh, the big beneficiary of this in the short run is, of course, Ron DeSantis. And I mentioned that Florida was uh, the red wave of this election. Uh, a part of that is being blamed on the Democratic Party not having done what you said uh, is supposedly their stronger suit getting out the vote, being, you know, out there on the ground. They also, I don't think, did a very good job in Florida of defending the um, the, the people that, that they were running against spurious, spurious attacks they were getting from all directions or countering some of the ex ab ab absolutely overwhelming Spanish language advertising that was done in South Florida, um, uh, making the essential issue of 2022 socialism and many of these folks of course are from either cuba or venezuela or have relatives who live there and they are uh, highly responsive to that uh, anti-socialism message they, they, they ron DeSantis carried miami-dade he didn't just hold down the democratic ma margin there he carried it and and that has to be terribly frightening to democrats in all parts of the country where there is a substantial hispanic vote uh, uh florida has never been like california in terms of that vote but but there is a very serious effort being made by the republican party to do better 
in terms of Spanish language radio, in terms of Spanish language literature, to find issues to appeal to all different kinds of Latino, Hispanic, Spanish-speaking, Spanish heritage voters. And, uh, and, and that's something Democrats did not respond to well in Florida and need to better wherever it's relevant. Well, the, even when you go back to uh, the second President Bush, he was trying to make all those inroads, but doing it with the Hispanic population, but doing it largely through immigration and through acceptance and so forth. And what has always struck me, and particularly in this midterm election, is how the Republicans have managed to not only become identified with immigration control and doing better with the number of migrants getting into the country, at least identified in some way through the media and through the public, and also becoming identified as doing better somehow with the economy and doing better somehow with just a number of issues that we can, inflation as part of the economy, but also big issues like crime. Um, the, the economic side of that has been really just in terms of fat crunch disproven. Uh, recently, I interviewed uh, David Rothkopf and uh, he did an article about this. And, you know, look at GDP, look at just the numbers, crunching the numbers and so forth. But there's a sense of disbelief in those numbers. Again, we get back to your article about facts versus truth and so forth. I was a little surprised in Florida, by the way, that Val Demings didn't do better than she did, too. There, there, there you have it. I mean, I, I, there were real questions about the candidate the Democrats nominated against uh, Ron DeSantis. That, that was Charlie Crist, who used to be governor of Florida at one time, but it was a Republican at the time. He was actually a serious consideree uh, for um, vice president uh, back during the uh, presidency of George W. Bush. His name came up uh, during the 2008 uh, search for candidates. Uh, it, it, it's hard to believe, isn't it? But uh, but that that uh, he's been through quite a transformation. He served in the House as a Democrat. His congressional seat went Republican on Tuesday. Um, I don't think it's terribly surprising that he was not successful against DeSantis, but I was surprised Val Demings did not do better against Rubio. Uh, but here again, there was a tremendous mobilization uh, on behalf of uh, Spanish-speaking voters or people with a Spanish heritage. And there also was not uh, an effective counter on the part of the Democrats to get out a larger vote among African-Americans and among Democrats of all kinds in Florida. It's, you know, Florida is a little like Texas and California in that there's many states in one. And whether you're talking about one part of Florida or another part of Florida, you're talking about very different places. But you do have to deal with the map as drawn. And the Democrats don't seem to have had a strategy for their for their campaign in that state in 2022. And, and that's something that needs to be addressed. You hear people saying, well, if we're not going to be able to do better in Florida, we're just not going to send any resources down there at all. We're going to write it off the way we used to write off Texas. And, and, and that's, that's not a winning national strategy. Question from Talalak Lopez Waterman in Honolulu, Hawaii. He wants to know, how do we reinvigorate discourse between divided political views in our country? <sighs> <laughs> that is talk about the big questions, Ron. Huh? Yes. Um, well, well that, with all questions. of your wisdom, <laughs> thoughtful questions. I um, and we thank the, the the questioners here. By the way, we always get very good, thoughtful questions. We're spoiled that way. I'm not surprised. Um, uh, 
I would say the best way to start is just start. Try to find someone that you don't talk to because you have said to yourself, I really don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear any more from that person. And we all have such friends or, or, or acquaintances, at least, and, and certainly family members uh, whom we have sort of held at arm's length or said, oh, we've agreed not to talk about politics with Uncle Earl, you know, what have you. Um, um, we've all got those relationships. And um, that is a luxury. That's a luxury of good times. And in hard times and difficult times, and I think we are, we are going to see in our public life some hard times, uh, we need to address that. We need to say, all right, I'm going to sit down with Uncle Earl. And I'm going to try to find some way or another to find something, something that we can agree on. Even if it's, even, even if it's only uh, tangentially political. Just try to find something we can agree on. Understand his framework. Understand where he's coming from. It's it's not fun. I got to tell you, I, I've I've never enjoyed doing this, and I uh, because I've been in the media. The uh, the um, you know it attracts a certain, as you well know, it attracts a certain number of people who want to take you on. Um, and and I I it's not my favorite you know, part of of the uh, of of the job. At the same time, I think that's what we need to do, because after you've really listened to people, they regard you differently. And as a journalist, you know this, that, that, that if you've really given someone a hearing, they regard you differently from what they might have before. And, yeah, I think uh, that's true. And, and that's what we need to start with. And everyone needs to do it on their own personal level. I don't think you can say, all right, from now on, everyone in America engage in more civil discourse or let's all be more understanding of other points of view you have to just practice it and uh, try to spread it well it's what certainly journalists like you and i have tried to do and believed in uh, i might say ardently fervently one of the problems though that we face now is there's so much asperity there's so much animus uh, and venom out there and i'm not only talking about social media i'm talking about people in who are public health officials you know getting needing security like Fauci did and all the way down the line. People on school boards needing security, children in schools needing security. I mean, we're in a different world now. You're talking about the best generation before. Um, this is, I don't want to sound too much of an alarm here, but, uh, or sound too pessimistic or down, but this is our reality, isn't it? Yes, it is. And, and I do think it's different. I don't think we're just, uh, you know, changing our perspective on it. I think it is materially different. And it is a threat to living the way we have been privileged to live in this country, which is that we can we can engage in politics. We're free to engage in politics, but we're not uh, visited by politics pounding on our front door in the, in the middle of the night. Uh, we don't have that kind of uh, intrusion. Most of us, uh, unless you're the husband of Nancy Pelosi. Well, and you know, and I was going to say at some point, Michael, it was—it's just—it's just very disheartening to think that not only that this should happen. Of course, the uh, the, the crime here is the the worst thing, but it's also disheartening to note how few people who should have taken this as an opportunity to say, "Let's lower the temperature. Let's back off of this." abuse of this one particular politician, Nancy Pelosi, who there's a cottage industry of Nancy Pelosi hate. I get scores of uh, 
email contribu- uh, email uh, um, contacts and uh, you know unbidden I'm just on lists and so I get things from Republicans running for office Democrats running for office mostly Republicans it seems and uh, uh, I know I'm on a list because they think my first name is Elving so everything is addressed to dear Elving and we're counting on you Elving and you've always been one of our most reliable and I've never given a dollar to a politician in my life so you know this is list stuff and I was hoping that some of that would at least ease around the time of the attack on Paul Pelosi, that there would be less vituperation in personal terms of Nancy Pelosi. That did not happen. And of course, we had you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene loudly proclaiming that the only, the only time Democrats ever care about crime is if it's an attack on Nancy Pelosi's husband. Um, that that is um, that is disheartening. So tell me what's heartening. What what gives you hope uh, at this point? My students, uh, not just my students. Young. The, the reason I say my students is because I don't naturally have a lot of other opportunity to meet Gen Z people. Uh, even my daughter is older, you know, and uh, and she regards those people as kids. So. Uh, um, it's great that I have an opportunity. It's a real privilege to be able to get up in front of, uh, you know, 50 uh, young people, in, in, hopefully in smaller groups than that, and uh, and hear from them. And that's why, I, you know, when I went to class this morning, I wanted to say, I, I'm sorry, I underestimated your generation. I knew you all voted. Um, I didn't require them to vote in terms of their grade, but I made sure they all had contacted the people back home and were sure they'd be voters this fall, uh, but I had underestimated their cohort, and I apologize to them for that. I have a lot of respect for these young people, and they hearten me every time I'm with them because they they seem to have the best of what America's heritage is, and I think they're already much better at the melting pot than any other American generation has ever been. And they're much more open and accepting of differences between people. And so my hope is that uh, the younger people are going to do better. Yeah, I share that hope as a teacher of young people for many, many years uh, and um, still doing it at your alma mater, Stanford. <laughs> taught all those years at San Francisco State. Uh, Apropos of that, here's a question. We thank Chris Clark for his question. He wants to know, is one of our lessons learned, I assume Chris is talking about the midterms, that the pundit and polling class should include younger participants who may be less seasoned but more in touch with their cohorts? Right on line with what you were saying? Yes, yes. And the answer to that is yes. Uh, we, I, I hope to, that it's safe to say that we at NPR are doing more and more of that. We have our, a new generation of hosts on our programs. Uh, I, I sometimes amazed myself in listening to NPR at how young everybody sounds. Because <laughs> you know I'm from the you know Robert Siegel, uh, you know Linda Wertheimer, Cookie Roberts generation, and um, uh, and of course you're the, kind of the last of the Mohicans. <laughs> well, Susan Stamberg is is still around and she of course is the mother of us all and in a very real sense uh, but you know what i'm saying that that when i came, when i came to npr i still felt like i was a younger member of uh, of the mohicans and so uh, uh and i miss of course those individual people very much and i i would i would say everyone you know has a certain fondness for their own generation but 
but I think we are doing what we need to do, which is turning the mics over to uh, very much younger people, not just people in their 40s, but people in their 20s and 30s. Here's Reed from Santa Rosa. Maybe a final question. He wants to know, is Trump above the law? No, Trump is not above the law. And I think that gradually, uh, and, I, and I think it's all right in a sense that our system is hesitant to prosecute a former president or a president in office, which, you know, at least that's the official position of the Department of Justice. You can't do it. But even a former president of the United States, I don't think we want to see the prosecution willy nilly of uh, politicians who have fallen from grace because it's always going to look as though they're being punished for having been in politics and, and having had different views. When there is a specific and clear case of criminality, and I would say particularly if it's divorced from their time in office, uh, they cannot be given a, a pass. And once they've left office, as with you know uh, others in the past, uh, they need to be taken before the bar of justice. I mean, Richard Nixon was given a pardon instead of a trial. And I think that uh, uh, I can understand why Gerald Ford felt the way he did, but I think that that was a mistake. I think we should have held Richard Nixon responsible for leading a criminal conspiracy. And if that is the case with Donald Trump, then I think uh, he should be held responsible for that as well. That brings up another ancillary question though, and that is the Republicans were talking when they were expecting the red wave that they would indeed impeach Joe Biden. They would also bring his son to justice. Those were, you know, as far as I could determine, uh, major wish list that they had. Now it's going to be a pretty small majority if it indeed turns out to be a majority. And there's still a possibility while we're talking now, unlikely, but a possibility that Democrats could eke out still a small majority. But if the Republicans have the majority as expected or anticipated, do you see those things moving forward in any way? It would seem unlikely that a party with that little margin for error would, uh, would, would, would expend its political capital in that way. Some people think that there are five or six or seven Republicans, and we could, we could throw in some names, uh, uh, that, that are so aggressive about their partisanship that they will insist on it. And if Kevin McCarthy or whomever uh, uh, wants their votes for speaker, they will say, that's the price, Kevin. I'm not voting for anybody who's not willing to give me a date when the impeachment process will begin against Joe Biden. That has been speculated. I'm not so sure. My guess is they've got fewer than 225 seats. They're going to want to uh, march a little more carefully and that they're not going to want to uh, be gone in two years as the majority party. And impeachment has almost always been unpopular. Certainly was very unpopular when they did it to Bill Clinton. So in, unless they have uh, something no one is aware of with regard to Joe Biden, any move in that direction, I think would be a major loser for them. And so cooler heads, I suspect, will prevail. Wasn't necessarily unpopular to the Democrats, though, when it occurred twice with Donald Trump, though, was it? Well, some Democrats, uh, I mean, obviously, Democrats in general were in favor of those impeachments. Some would have impeached him for you know, what was in the Mueller report, for that matter, even though it was uh, inconclusive in some respects. Uh, he clearly, uh, it, it, there's evidence in the Mueller report that he clearly obstructed justice in terms of that pursuit, uh, the, the, in terms of uh, the, the Russian connection. So 
among partisan Democrats, popular, yes. Among many people in the House, certainly it was an absolute imperative. Uh, still, Nancy Pelosi resisted it until she absolutely couldn't, until he broke the law so openly and brazenly that she couldn't. And, um, and the second time, of course, after January 6th, that, that uh, is an entire, entirely a different matter. Still, having said all that, I don't think the country as a whole liked, especially the first impeachment of Donald Trump. Uh, if, if it had been more in favor of that, the Senate would have felt more pressure to convict, and he himself would not have been able to do as well as he did. I mean, as even losing, uh, he did get uh, you know more votes to be reelected uh, than any other incumbent president in the past. He just happened to lose to the other guy by another seven million votes. But it wasn't as though he had been rejected uh, massively by the voters, or there was a sense that impeachment alone, you know, had. Uh, um, uh, you know, failed to get him and that the voters needed to do it. It, it, it was, uh, I think, a less than totally po a popular move for the Democrats to make the first time. And uh, I don't disapprove of Speaker Pelosi's decision to do it because she's responsible first and foremost to her own membership. But I think she always knew that it was going to be an enormous expenditure of political capital and it probably ultimately would be futile. And as I said, always a delight to talk with you, always enlightening. Uh, your students are very fortunate to have you, your natural-born teacher, and uh, many thanks for being with us. And many kind thanks uh, for those of you who are with us for this episode live and those of you who will be watching this episode in the future. And a reminder to you, all of you uh, that if you like what you are experiencing here on Gray Matter with Michael Krasny, we invite you to join this unique and ever-expanding community of ours and become members Simply go to graymatter.show, and I want to thank all, not only who joined us and will be joining us, but also uh, thanks to our remarkable team, to uh, Alex and Shannon and Colin and Chad, and uh, special thanks to Ron Elving of National Public Radio. For all of us, I'm Michael Krasny. Bandwidth for Gray Matter is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com.